Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Wurtfest 2016 and specifically the HB Tom Theatre. Uh, it is my honor to introduce the guests today. Now, Claire Robertson is the author of The Spiral House, winner of the 2014 Sunday Times Fiction Prize and a South African Literary Award and shortlisted for the University of Johannesburg Debut Prize. She lives in Simon's Town. Michiel Haynes grew up in various towns and cities all over South Africa and studied at the universities of Stellenbosch and Cambridge. He lectured in English at the University of Stellenbosch until 2003, when he took retirement to write full-time. Apart from a book on the 19th century novel and many critical essays, he has published seven novels and several translations, the latest of which is Ingrid Winterbach's It Might Get Loud. He is at present working on a new novel and a translation of Ingrid Winterbach's Flakwater. Please welcome them. Thanks very much. Um, wow, Claire, yes, we've been, um, I don't want to say at loggerheads before, but we have, we have faced each other before. Um, I hope this is going to be as pleasant as the last time. In fact, I'm sure it will be. Now, both your novels um, have been historical novels. Um, the um, Spiral House was set in late, 17, late 18th century beginning. Uh, 1795 and, 1795 and 1961. And, and the mid 20th century. And this one is set from, is it 1901? Or was it no? About late 1901 Nin up until we just nick 1948. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to come back to that very interesting um, time um, span. But what I want to ask you first is. Why are you attracted to historical novels? I didn't know that I was. It, it was the <laughs> weirdest really thing. Yeah. Um, the, the first one just sucked me in to the spiral house, to the story of a freed slave re-encountering slavery. I just thought it was an interesting thing to do. Um, this one, also, I'd been reading and I encountered something. And the third book that I'm busy with at the moment, I, I had it all planned out. It was this right up to the minute um, South African contemporary novel and it was so cool etc and I just got ambushed whoosh mm. by a, a Victorian novel in South Africa a which, South African Victorian mm, novel South African Victorian in um, Natal mm. um, and if I look back I have always um, read a lot about South African history I'm, my, my pet project that I'm always working on in the back of my mind is a history of sex in South Africa because we have <laughs> we do have some history, we, uh, we, the way we express ourselves in law and thou shalt not and all of the things. Anyway, just well, that enters into this, doesn't it? Into this. Well, I did. I indulged myself in the middle section of this book with with an entirely ludicrous um, approach to sexuality on the part of the British. Well, the British, and then a British missionary who wants to regulate how um, how people go about their business. Um, and I can't answer the. Part of me is a bit reluctant to say, well, I'm a writer of historical fiction because it, it paints a picture in my mind of a writer that I don't quite recognize. I guess it's a Georgette Hare. I should be so lucky as to write as well as Georgette Hare. Hilary Mantel. No, no, no. That's the redemption. If Hilary Mantel can do it and, and make these miraculous books like she's done. Um, well, the I thing so I think bad. is the point that someone made about Hilary Mantel is it's extremely well researched. It's historically, one believes, uh, very accurate, and yet it reads like a modern novel. The issues are modern, the people are modern, their mindsets are modern. And do you feel that about your characters? I'm, 
I don't want to commit myself on it. Um, do, in other words, do you feel yourself making concessions saying no one in 1930 could have thought like that, or do you find yourself imposing um, something of your own mindset I on your character? I tie myself into the most terrible knots trying to realize what people could have known. There's a wonderful book that I found called um, Pattern of Expectation, and it, is, it sets out what people thought the future would be like in various times, from late um, 17th century, right the way up to about the mid 200s, 2000s. Um, and it is fascinating. We're not, it's very brief, the, um, the, the historical period. If I, I go back, I think, two or 300 years mm -hmm. in the first book, that's not very long in the passage of um, things. And I try, I try while um, trying to imagine they would or wouldn't have thought that that I'm also battling against 20, 21st century chauvinism, that we think we're so clever and we've sorted out so much now, and we really haven't. <laughs> we're still struggling with the same things and we still are basic mammals at the end of it. Yeah. But um, the, the third book that I'm busy with at the moment, I'm toying with more of an authorial intervention, as grand as that sounds, in that I like... I mean, who are we kidding if we say that it's not being read by 21st century people mm. who, who, are all, who all share a certain mindset? So why not include that? But are you using then a voice that is 21st century sussed up? In other words, someone who says, well, um, we of course know this couldn't be like this. In other words, is the authorial voice standing here or is the authorial voice... Uh, Coeval with the, uh, All the I know is that it's, it's interjecting the, where we think we've reached in terms of, and me also as a woman in my 50s, where we think we've reached in terms of human mm. motive and understanding mm. um, expressed in the idiom of the day. I'm quite strict about that. It, that idiom it is of that day? Of that day, okay, yeah. Right, no. okay. And in fact, the, in, in the Magistrate of Gower, close readers will notice. <laughs> it starts um, sort of 1902, so Edwardian. Mm. It goes to a little bit of history in high Victorian language, mm. uh, quite deliberately. Mm. Slips into the 1920s mm. and then mm. the, the 30s were the hardest to get because they're too close to us and then there's no great, there's not a great Gatsby to deal with in that. You're not, there's no, no clear touchstones, cultural touchstones mm. to work out how to do it. So I just made them, I found um, the most wonderful uh, source. I love the internet to bits. In the 30s, there was a South African singer called Yusuf Merer, who just, I don't know how well known he was. He, was, he translated I a wasn't lot around, of... But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you may have heard stories. Um, he translated a lot of Afrikaans folk songs into okay. English and had quite a hit in America with these. Okay. And this very pure, very sweet, sort of his idiom was mm. I tried to use in the 30s. Okay. Mm. Okay. Did you find yourself, um, since uh, many of your characters are in fact Afrikaans speaking, did you find yourself adapting English to what you regard as Afrikaans speech rhythms? Or, um, did, yeah. I did that a lot in the first book, in okay. the 1961 period. Okay. Oh. I would almost write it in my head in Afrikaans oh, yeah. and, then, and then change it because they are... It's the closest you get to exotic and interesting for me, anyway, mm. in this country. Is, well, not, the, not the closest. In what I was dealing with, it was irresistible. I couldn't stay away from those sort of rhythms because yeah. they are so beautiful and it's yeah. such a playing around with language. Yeah. A language playing around with. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, wait, sorry, trying to put yeah. the verb at no, the end it, of the It's sentence. quite a precarious thing, you know. I think no, I, no, you I, don't want parody, my goodness, yeah, that would be I, terrible. I, I, for instance, I mean, I admire Alan Payton's, um, you know, in Too Late the Fellow, but some people do object that what he's doing there, he's sort of writing what he regards as an English version of the Afrikaans, and some people find it awfully um, phony, but I, I, I like it. Oh. But, you know. I was so worried about giving offence with this magistrate of Gower, because... Mm. I mean, I stumped around saying, well, I'm South African, I can, I can write myself into being Dingaan's daughter if I want. But mm. you really can't. You mm -hmm. can't you have, you, you very, it's very obvious that you're imagining in a social context mm -hmm. that is not entirely, you know, we're not Simonia, we are not one yet. Mm. Um, and I was a bit worried about that. Um, but the, of the main character, Henry Force, the things I liked best about him were what you would call Afrikaans things, his, his generosity of spirit, his humor. Um, and that was an important part of the book, that he is, he's both so of his people and mm. both personally, internally, and externally with the politics of the day, feels himself rejected or that he cannot be part of it. But he's such a wonderful exemplar. If you're getting towards the... If there's a lesson in the book, it's not so much that the people who are excluded, who suffer, it's the place that excludes them. It's the village that cuts out the, its best and its brightest in that way. That's who suffers. Yeah. Now that's, uh, I mean, that's very central to a line yeah. I want to follow up on. Sorry, I'm that, rushing ahead with No, me. no, I mean, you know, you're here to, to rush. I mean, <laughs> I'm <laughs> not, not here to stop you. Not to natter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, I mean, if we look at the title... Um, the magistrate of Gower, what we have is a, um, call it a creative tension between the individual, the magistrate, and the place, Gower. But the individual is there in terms of his, uh, of his job. It's, it's not Henry Foster. Uh, and a respected position in this place yeah. called Gower. Yeah. So what, what came first to you, the concept of Gower, the concept of a magistrate in Gower, Henry Foss, the, the character. This book has a creation myth, a very neat one that I can just sort of trot out, but it really did happen this way. I was reading my brother um, and, and his beloved are great Boer War fans and Zulu War fans, any war in South Africa they like. Um, and so I was reading something in, in the round about the Boer War. Um, there's been some lovely books recently, Banalangani, Fremda and other ones like that. And I came across the story of a British general called um, General Sir Hector MacDonald, who was a, he was a Scots general, very, very, very successful and, and, and pretty rare for the time in that he wasn't born to it. He wasn't a nobleman. He uh, came up from a working class and worked his way up the ranks to be this very successful general, hugely resented by Kitchener. He was a better uh, Kitchener and um, Gordon of Khartoum. All those, none of those guys liked him terribly much. Um, and he fought in the Boer War, and then he went off to Ceylon, where he was was pretty dismissive of the tiny little British colonial society there, who and they really didn't like him very much at all. And they very shortly were sending home dispatches about him being found in the company of boys. And I realised it always has to be boys because you you know it's such so, so easy to make the case that it's wrong if it's boys, but you can't make the case that easily if it's men. Anyway. Um, these dispatches went home and he was disgraced and recalled and the king pretty much handed him a gun and said, do the honourable thing, which he, he crossed the channel to Paris and in a hotel room he blew his brains out. And two things struck me about that story, amazing to come across it, it's a really beautiful story and a lot of people have written about it, 
in the writing of it, to this day there are people trying, expending 50% of the energy of the book on trying to prove that he wasn't gay. So he lived his whole life, he was gay, he lived his whole life um, and had sacrificed in a way and then it was being denied by late historians. So the twisting of history is always very interesting, especially to South Africans, I think. And the other interesting thing was that before he went to Ceylon, he was said to have had, horror of horrors, a Boer prisoner of war as a lover. And that is just not your auntie's Boer war. And I thought, this is absolutely fascinating. And then I had the story. And from there, it um, almost through the mechanics of how the story would work. I wasn't that interested in the British general. I was very interested in the, in the Boer prisoner of war. He became younger. His lover became younger. And his story started. And then it just, in sort of idle musings, worked out that someone who was a young man in the Boer War would have lived to see Afrikaner nationalism rise, and it just gripped me, that story. That's the one I told. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that answers my question, because it's a very interesting interaction between the historical setting and the kind of pressures that there would have been anyway, and then for someone who is in some way exceptional. Now, you know, the um, British general, of course, d does crop up in your book. Interestingly, almost as a footnote. But, yes. But, um, as, a, as a sort of a little, a little, um, a, a wink from the universe of courage for Henry. <laughs> Don't worry, you're not alone. <laughs> yes, and, and Henry notes that, interestingly, that he was married and had children. Yes, the know. wonder of it all, he had been mm. married and had a son, which he oh, did, which well, he had. Yeah, um, nothing new under the sun. No, well, but, I think it wasn't that uncommon. Then Oscar Wilde was married and had two children. So yeah, and also died in Paris, although not yeah. didn't commit suicide. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Henry was a kind of upwelling of history, if you like, but then he established himself as a character in his own right, very much so. Yeah. In, in uh, he's, I think I, um, I have a terrible worthy streak, and it starts to, to, to sort of sketch these great parables about right and wrong in South Africa and stuff, and mm -hmm. I have to fight that and make the story happen, try to make the story happen. I was hugely guided by my publisher in the front row in this, who's asking some acute questions in the early manuscript about okay. why would he do this? Is this what's happening? Why does he disappear here and someone else comes up? And so. Okay. so working hard to make him human. And I was a little bit in love with Henry at the end of things. Yes, one senses that, but okay. I think... Um, Is that a bad thing if you... No, I think be. authors fall in love with their characters okay. in groups. Yeah. fall in love. No. Okay. no. Okay. It has to be someone you could never get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gay guy. Um, well, I, I, I was thinking about it this morning that someone said, well, she couldn't warm to my main character. And I felt almost as if she told me she couldn't warm to me. Oh, you know, because, um, yeah. <laughs> that, um, because you invest so much of yourself. This doesn't mean you create characters that are necessarily admirable. But I think you, you do have to have, uh, you know, I'm sure... Flaubert loved Madame Bovary, but yes. hell, I mean, does he ever punish her? You know, that, you know, yeah, but he really understands her. I mean, that's where he probably yeah, love. Yeah, but he, he punishes her for that. But yeah, he does. So I suppose, I mean, let's be original, call it a love-hate relationship. But, but The then, one I love most in this book is the dread Mrs. Poley. Yes, now that's interesting. Dreadful but, woman. <laughs> uh, you see, I think you handle that so well, the Adam Blancas. Um, you don't call them that, but that's what mm. they were called. Blicky Storp. And uh, it would have been so easy just to make them only Adam and Blanc. Uh, but uh, these are people who are scrabbling very hard for an existence. Yeah. And you feel that 
that what is here is, yes, it's a class division, but it's the haves and the have-nots. And very interestingly, you don't really go into race. I mean, that here, no. class is, is mm. prime. And then what I also... Sorry, I'm talking too much. No, no, no. Admired very much is your treatment of Johnny. Johnny is the boy who, in a way, seduces the magistrate. He's, and am, he's amoral. And you, boy, did you ever need someone amoral to walk into that story? Absolutely. <laughs> and he's on the make, but he's not just a hustler. I think what mm. I liked about that was one sense that here is a boy who's grown up very poor, he's not known any affection, that he's also partly drawn to the affection. It's, yes. it's not just that... Oh, he's it, feral, but he's like those lovely yeah. ginger toms who yeah. come to the back door. He's feral, but he, he will... And it means everything when you get love from a cat like that, I think. Yeah. The, the polies, the, 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 um, the, guy, the people, the poor whites living in Blickystorp, almost an analogy within an analogy, because if the book is a lot about the rise of nationalism and it has to understand that, that there was a survival impulse, imagined or real, mm. in this. I, well, I don't mean imagined or real, I mean expropriated by politicians or real mm. in this thing. The, the survivalists in the book are those, are the polies and those like them. And they're so interesting, I find, people who, who will do anything to, when it's down to brass knuckles yeah, and yeah. how do you feed no, your no, children. Uh, yeah, yeah, and... Um, yeah. Yes, again, I don't know why I'm thinking of Alan Payton again, but in Too Late, the Fellerope, the woman betrays the policeman, sleeps with her, because mm. someone has threatened to take away her child. Mm. So you feel this is someone driven to such an extreme that she'll do anything. And you mm. feel with Mrs. Poli, when she comes and she basically blackmails the mm. magistrate, she needs the money. Yeah, and he... The magistrate understands that, that mm. there's, a, there's a survival impulse here and that he's almost being in, invited to participate in her survival. Mm. He doesn't, he tries, well, he's a bit wishy-washy. He's definitely of my mindset of, of wanting to do the right thing, but like really wishy-washy. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody liberals. Um, and he, and he, he almost understands why she's doing yeah. that. Yeah. Oh. No, I mean, he is an exceptional person, and I don't well, mean unbelievable, but... Well, I think the part that he, he, he won't understand and that he can't get past is the part that assumes that being who he is makes him worthy of punishment. That's where he stops. That's where the real mm -hmm. hurt comes, that something so deep in him has made him someone um, excluded from grace. That he, he, is, he is the one... You mean he, f you f he feels... He excluded by virtue of what he knows himself yes, to be. Yes, what he knows himself to be. Yeah. And yeah. yet he is, from the start, revered by, um, uh, you know, yeah. as this beautiful young man, yeah. and then as the magistrate. He's superb. Uh, the, the, the Boers love him on commando. He looks right. He's, mm, in, the, mm. he's in the propaganda films mm, of the time. Mm. And they were something, those propaganda films. And they actually, you can find them. I wanted to ask you about the propaganda films. watch them. Yeah. That one that is described is an, is an actual the propaganda young, film. The young boer saddling up. No, no, no. no. The, the one, the the one the that is boer. like the sneaky boer. Okay. The, yeah, okay. Was filmed in the yellow hills of Lincolnshire. <laughs> Blackburn, um, Lancashire. Yeah, and they, and they have this, this British, you know, this noble Tommy standing on guard. And ding, 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 ding. <laughs> out of <laughs> comes the sneaky boer. Uh, 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 and the other one of the young Boer was your... Um, no, that was just imagination. Uh, okay, yeah. So he gets... He, the, the, the Boers love him. He's on commando. He's just superb. The British, when they start to impose or to start to introduce a quota system to make Milner's hell 
more easily palatable for everyone to, to make his exit, I think, a bit easier. Anyway, they start handing over and they start uh, encouraging him to be like them. You know, we'll mm. raise this Afrikaans guy to be a, a British gentleman. And then they, he gets a job through a quota system, through mm. affirmative action. He gets uh, the magistrate of Gower. Yes, that is interesting. I oh. mean, if one, since we're back in a quota system, that Henry... The way that the sort of incumbent magistrates and so on talk of Afrikaners, well, lots of them are now, you know, coming in that there is this quota, yeah. and there, there clearly is a kind of contempt there. But he's okay. I mean, they, they, they're sort of quite surprised that Henry is educated. Yeah, I don't know which would be more galling. Um, Milner's lot saying, you, you're not cutting it, or Milner's lot saying, no, you're doing... You're doing okay. For an Afrikaner. For an Afrikaner, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, uh, and that sneery thing, which my tribe is so very good at, mm. it had to be in the book, so there it is. Yeah, it's quite strong also, of course, in Salon with the awful, what's her name? Oh, Sayala Ufit. Now, where do you get a name like a Sayala Ufit? I'm reading lots of Victorian. C-Y-E-L-L-A. double O. F-I-T. Those are real names from the world. I, I was wondering. <laughs> and in fact, she first came with a photograph. I trawled thousands and thousands of photographs, and I literally found one okay. of this heavy-jawed woman, yeah. youngish woman, trying to look pretty and be loved, and she just wasn't, and she hated the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> you do sense that somewhere there is something to be pitied there, but at yeah, the same time, no. there's a lot there to be very yeah. scared of. If we're no. speaking very obs ob obscurely, sorry, chaps, um, in the prisoner of war camp on Ceylon, young Henry is given parole to accompany the Sayala Ufit out on outrides because you can't ride among the natives by yourself. So he rides with her and that frees him from the camp and of course makes, sets up a very important image for the book. He's mm. constrained, he's free, he's constrained, he's free. Oh, so. yes, That's my favourite part of the book. It's your, it, yeah, because it's all subtropics and love. <laughs> and this uh, and, uh, beautiful uh, young monk in, uh, in orange, orange robes. And so on. I won't yeah. spoil it for the, um, <laughs> the company. Well, it's happened that the, the love happened so early in the book, yes. I don't think we're spoiling yeah. it. Yeah. It is yeah. very idyllic, I must say. I admired the way in which you don't... I was dreading all the way through. We're we going to have this absolute catastrophe. Again, as in... Um, too late the fellow rope where the policeman is caught and he is disgraced and he is thrown out of the community. And, uh, and now, sorry to spoil it, um, but it doesn't quite happen like that. You know, that, that of course there is a, um, a change. He is in a way um, demoted, but not in, it's not the kind of total calamity that one has in... I just, um there are, t there are a couple of texts that informed us. Not, not texts, you know, huge in the, in the grand way, because I'm sort of feeling my way in this writing thing. But one of the things that I've, always, I've loved since I was a kid and read it, and it stayed with me and it, it, it answers your question. Um, Herman Charles Bosman, in, it's in Coldstone Jug that he writes about this, and he was imprisoned in Pretoria Central, and then he was let out after, I think, two years or something, to go and put up a notice board outside the main gate. So he would come out of the warders gate, walk about 100 meters, put up the thing. And he'd been imagining, what will the world be like? It will be so bright and so beautiful. There'll be greenery and flowers and women and trees. And he goes out and he walks and a woman walks past him and he puts up the thing and he goes back and he's completely hollowed out and undone 
by the subtlety of what he saw, by the pastels and the small ways, the light shifts. And it, you have no defense against subtlety. You can, you can fight um, nationalism, mm -hmm. bold colors when they come, but it's the subtlety that'll get mm -hmm. you every time. I'm not interested in him being tarred and feathered and driven out mm -hmm. of the city mm -hmm. or the town. It's much more interesting to me if the disgrace is internal, hidden, Mm. of his own volition, mm. um, all those other ways. It's a bit, it's going to get me into such trouble one day and maybe this is the day. But um, race in South Africa can't, it isn't subtle enough yet. Or the, way we, the way we fight about it is mm. such a bl in such a blunt way that it just, it doesn't feel Well, it could be a challenge and perhaps someone can tell me whether Perhaps it's been done, but I know, I know what you're saying is that we conceive of it very much in terms of a confrontation or something that rather than these are just people living together and there are certain tensions and there are certain yeah. attractions. And some tensions are attributable to mm. these great um, sort mm. of monolithic visions we have mm. of each other and some are not. Mm. Anyway. Which right at this moment there is such a polarization that it's, that it's oh. very difficult to... Um, it's almost like an old dance. We will move towards each other, up into each other's faces, <laughs> and soon we'll just minuet back a bit. Okay, right, yeah. oh. Boy, sorry for derailing it. No. <laughs> um, you know, obviously you've, you've done so much research. I'm, um, I went in the best possible way. I, I never feel that we're just having research thrown at us, as one sometimes does in reading. Uh, well, we, I, we've buried in the text quite deliberately of the hardcover a really bad error. You did what? Sorry, you <laughs> There's an error buried, like an Easter egg hunt. Okay. I know you got it. Maybe <laughs> everyone else won't get it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, well I had some real... So much for research, in, there's a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, that's just the only one that I noticed. But uh, I've also tried to write historical novels, and I, it's a problem I have, and I just want to know how you feel about it, that... You're never quite sure um, what's driving your narrative. Is it the research or are, are you writing a story that you have in your mind and then you do research to sort of back it up? It's the oddest thing. Mm. I mean, and to try to explain to someone who hasn't been through that. Mm. Because they're both happening at the same time, mm. but you're very aware when one's in the lead and one's not in the lead. Yeah. Um, recently, I sort of had rushed into writing this third book that I'm busy with. Um, and there were certain assumptions I made about a certain place, and I just wrote them because it would fit the story. And I went recently to that place and drove on the route, and it was all confirmed. It could have happened that way, and those things mm. were indeed there. The things I needed for the book were in the real world. Mm. And I had that very strange mixed reaction that mm. you have. is oh, great, that's cool, tick that off. Mm. But also, hmm. It wasn't just imagined, it was actually there. Mm. It's like, mm. <laughs> bloody earth plagiarized my description. <laughs> I don't know, it's a strange feeling, well, isn't it? So you don't know... Life, life following art, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So you, and you, can, you can pat yourself on the back and say, what a clever thing to have guessed it that way. But I would rather have guessed it and it wasn't quite that way. I don't know, maybe it's would a it slight have, surrendering of control, if you're doing... But would it have mattered if the town looked completely different? Because you, no, I would have liked it more yeah. if it had looked completely different and I'd made it uh, so bent the, to my will. <laughs> so this uh, um, Gowrie is based on an actual town? 
No, no, okay. it's based on three or four different towns. Okay, right. Because but, yeah. but it's in an actual place. It's, in, it's near Jamestown, which does exist. Okay, right. Bottom of Lesotho. Okay, right. Just in the free state. Of course, we have a Jamestown out here between really? Stellenbosch and Somerset oh, West. But, it's but not it's, that Jamestown. It's a very different Jamestown. <laughs> no, no. Yes. No, yeah. um, so you felt there was a kind of interaction. Uh, so there is, um, I think... If you do come across in your research something that's so great that you have to put it in just because you love the fact mm. and that you have to bend the narrative to do it, mm. you have to be so careful. You have to be careful. Because it's, it's very apparant. And it, it yeah. might well be apparent in the Magistrate of Gower where yeah, I've done it, that. It can show. Yeah. I know when I wrote a novel which was based on the life of Henry James and I included a couple of things that people said to me, why did you include this? Yeah. And I said, well, just because it happened. And that's the worst reason to put anything into a novel, I think, is because it happened. Yeah, or because I can. Yeah. Because I'm somehow doing, you, you take the reader off the track of the book and the trust that you've established mm. to quickly do a little, you know, soft shoe shuffle yeah. because you've yeah. Le- yeah. just learned how to do a yeah. soft shoe shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not good. Uh, shall I ask you where it was that it's quite apparent in this? Because I know. Uh, this, this yeah. Uh, it's, with, it's in the British period, in the middle period, isn't it? When you're talking about God. Mm, mm. You want me to guess where... where, where well, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, well, I, I so assume it's... not it's, happened at all. <laughs> I, I, well, I don't actually know places like Carnarvon and so on, but I assume it's something, Carnarvon, Sutherland, something like that, is, um, just because of the, the names that you mentioned. Did it, do I mention those in the thing? Because that's where Gower comes from. Where, you, you, I heard you at, at the open book saying oh, yeah, that yeah, there was yeah. an Earl of Gower and... and yes, uh, we, there's a Carnarvon, Sutherland, Sutherland. Wellington, no, not Wellington. Uh, Carnarvon, yeah. Sutherland, someone else, and Gower. Yeah. And we had three of the four. We had here. three of them. Yeah. So, so I assumed that Kern- the town was something like that. Yes, it's exactly. Um, and it was um, when the British were deciding, okay, we're going to impose our great map and red crayon on this country, and they sort of established these towns all over the place, that we very quickly stopped being British towns and started being the towns of people descended from the Dutch. So the water furrows are... Um, but you make, uh, you make the point here that, ah, oh, yes, here we are. Another, uh, um, they, they, they established this town. Another would be built north or northwest of this one and named like its noble brother, Carnarvon, Worcester, uh, Worcester Sutherland, Gower. And over time, we fitted with steeple trees. A main street whose shops faced one another across the street, almost too wide for hailing. Um, they must run out somewhere, these towns. But from here it seems as though they repeat like a pattern on a vast belt of cloth all the way to the Val. So, um, yes, so Gower is um, a representative example of a particular kind. And this is what one feels. Of course, it's been spoilt by pep stores and um, these things. But it's incredible to see those old, beautiful facades with the... <laughs> Bank, uh, yeah, uh, neon yeah. just slapped across them. Yes, mm. no. I mean the the sort of semi-urban ugliness that that has overtaken small towns. But I love the way a whole uh, school of South African painters have started loving that mm. urban ugliness. Um, yes, 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 yeah. yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. John Kramer and those yeah, I'm thinking guys, of Kramer, yeah, yeah and mm. um, Willem yeah. and um, what's Borshoff. his name? Um, Willem Boschoff. Willem. No, um, it'll come to me. Um, anyway, I'll think of it. Um, that kind of photorealist rendering of, of shop fronts. Yeah, and, like being, and insisting Both on the right to admire and love and find beauty ev- yeah. in it, even though it's... Yeah. Because it's ours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, right, so... Uh, 
is Henry, I'm still interested in this thing of Henry Ford as an insider-outsider, when you seem to see him as central to his character, the fact that he, he feels himself outside, though, although he is seen as inside. I mean, that, does he feel a fraud? He feels superior to the people he's around. That is one of the things. And I think when he, when he decides to make a life for himself, setting up home with his sister, that he has somehow successfully negotiated this thing. Mm. He doesn't, I don't think the fraud part comes into mm. it. He's, he is as he is, and the world is as he finds mm. it, and mm. now he's going to make a plan for how he Well, I think another very, very refreshing thing about your novel is he's, he's not racked with guilt. I mean, he isn't, oh my God, what am no. I? You know? I think uh, part of being the product of such a sunlit childhood where you're the favorite child and the beautiful one is mm. that you're not going to be like that. Whatever else you have, you have those very basic things we all have, is how you were raised, where you were in the, in yeah. the structure of the family. Um, yeah. But I think for a gay man, um, even now, but obviously much more so then, to grow up is, is a very difficult process of placing yourself in relation to a society that you think is going to reject you if they were to know. Now, yeah. Henry doesn't seem to feel that... I hope that... Um, because he wouldn't have known of many men like mm -mm. him, especially as a boy growing up, that mm. he would not see it as, mm. uh, it wouldn't have been hugely spoken about where he was growing up, and, and not as a shameful thing. He would have picked up that you, you, one ought not to be like this. Well, but you, there wasn't a, almost mm. um, an underworld or a subculture of shame that he could slip into or find identity in at all. You make the point at one stage, I think it's with Prem, the, uh, the young monk, that they had no name for what they were doing. Yeah. Um, it almost makes me think I've been reading about the Greeks. They say that the Greeks had no name for same-sex um, oh, really? intercourse because it's what they did. Yeah. You know that. So um, <laughs> we, of course, have labels, yeah. and, and people um, well, see themselves in terms of those labels. And any young man growing up here will, will have heard about Morpheus. Yes, you know, yeah, uh, uh, almost yeah. the first thing he heard. Yeah. And, and so, he would have heard it before he was, in a way, rescued by his own natural urges. Mm. Henry is. Lots of us are redeemed by, I think, by our yeah, human yes. yes, I think the subtlety mm. is that he, he gets drawn into this relationship before he has any notion of, yeah. uh, of what it is. I mean, in other words, it's unmediated by yes. uh, society. And it happens yeah. very, I mean, not terribly subtly. It happens in Eden. It's yes. before the fall. Yeah. He has before the fall, then he has a fall, and now... It, yeah. We have an interesting, much more seer part. The, mm. um, the landscape of the book is lushly subtropical. It's in the highlands of Ceylon among the tea plantations. Then it's back in Cape Town, the family farm, uh, the sort of silly 20s, and then this, just this throat-closing dry, mm -hmm. which is my experience of living under Afrikaner nationalism, the dryness. The dryness. The, the, just, um, not being able to express I, um, anything. I think, I think you've mentioned this before. I just want to go back to it. That I sense that those dates, you know, 1901, 1948, you were uh, tracking the rise of Afrikaner nationalism. That, um, I mean, it's, it's much more subtle once again than that. But uh, is that why you chose those particular dates? Yeah. Yes. The, um, that's, uh, and it really is stretched to get 48 in. And I don't know. If well, I, you, you jump ten, ten years yeah, again. If I, if I did it again, I'm not sure I would. I just really? leave it. Just leave it. You, know, you don't have to hit it over the head saying it would come to pass. It's clearly coming to pass in most of the book. 
Well, you, do, you don't actually spell it out. I mean, that mm. we don't... Um, we know it's 1948, and of course 1948 reverberates in our minds, but mm. you, you don't actually, um, you know, insist on it. Well, the, by then, the, who, who is the main character of the book has been swapped halfway through. Yes. And the person who's now the main character of the book is left reflecting. She's lived through... Mm watching things come to pass. And she's in some way armoured against what's coming mm. because of what she's gone through. But um, I, I think I said briefly in correspondence before today, um, the, the, the mother in the children's mm. day, who, oh, yes. in yeah. your book. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just, something that struck me, it's a small thing, it might, it might have sort of flown by you. She comes back from a Fro Federasi meeting mm. and the husband says something and she just says something a little bit cool and distant, but... Mm but not dismissive or ugly mm. or anything about the meeting or about mm. one of the people there. Mm. And just, that just stayed with me. And that whole Thrawn family uh. in the Magistrate of Gar is comes from her. Oh, well, that's yeah. wonderful. There you go. It's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I'm very flattered. No, I think that the mother in that book, um, in the children's day, is seen as someone who, who is not a rebel, but who very quietly uh, has her reservations about what's... Yeah. I know, she's based on my mother, and my mother once said to me, she goes to church and she goes along with the chaloos belatedness. She says, that's a secret deal of our when it's still blay. You know, and you, you, yeah. you, you, don't, uh, you don't say anything, you just don't yeah. go along with... with but everyone's like that today mm -hmm. as well. There's just... Before you are this great political being, you're still someone who has to go to church on Sunday and yeah, see their friends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, uh, you know, the two points I want to take up there. One is the sister, Anna, who um, is a very important figure in his life at first. You know, she is also, she's attracted to the city. She, she yeah. has a kind of empathetic bond with Henry. She goes to the city with him. And then the farmer comes and claims her, and she disappears basically from the novel. Mm. Um, was that sort of deliberate to, <laughs> perhaps along the lines of the Olive Schreiner recollection that you, that you also sort of use in your book, that the, the fate of a woman who has other interests, other abilities perhaps, mm. then, I don't want to say relapsing, but, but certainly going back in time to a, to a previous kind of dispensation, because she becomes Frau and Mother um, in yeah. at the end. I think, um, I, didn't, I didn't see her as a, a great feminist hero at all, or, mm. or a hugely talented or skilled person. She was just someone who had to make a life for herself, mm. who had to survive somehow, um, was a little bit brighter than maybe, or, or more ambitious than the family she'd born mm. into and had to escape it. Mm. And mainly she was there, um, sorry, Anna, <laughs> to be Henry's attempt at passing for straight. Okay, yeah. so she's what we nowadays call a beard. You know. Yeah, she's, she's a beard. Okay. <laughs> and then she had to leave the story, so she does. Okay. <laughs> Oops, yeah. seeing behind the great yeah. curtain of yeah. Oz. Yeah. No, but I, I thought it was very poignant, this young yeah. woman who you know, comes to Cape Town. And, all yeah. of a sudden and she's not entirely reconciled to her fate, but she knows, mm. it's almost like she knows that is what she has to do. She has to marry and have children. Mm. Yeah. Well, I've been uh, reflecting a lot on sexism versus racism recently. On what? Sexism versus racism, okay. because I mean, yeah. people are talking about economic emancipation f not following political emancipation mm. in South Africa, and I'm just thinking, well, speak to the women about how it's been like 80 years that we've had political power, and we're mm. still not um, economically emancipated. Anyway, and then you have to come round to reflecting 
that for the good for the survival of the species and for all these other reasons sexism is different from racism in that you are locked together. The sexism thing has to be worked out somehow that way. And again, she's not the first woman in the world to have to give up a different life mm. because of the cause of biology. She mm. wants to have babies. Yeah. But it's interesting here that it's almost as if the country comes to claim her. In that, you know, the farmer yeah. comes into Cape Town, then takes her into Gower, into, yeah. yeah. But, um, but again, I, I, yes, he's almost summoned by yeah. the Thrawn family. Almost summons him yeah. to find her waiting. Yes, it's. I fought quite hard. I don't know if I won. Uh, and when we were editing it, of he comes and finds her waiting for him. It's it's the, the first time they meet the farmer okay. and Anna. Okay, right. well, anyway, get down the rabbit hole with that phrase. <laughs> with any phrase. Um, while we're talking about the female characters, I mean, there is of course the. Redoubtable Mrs. Foley. Poli. Do you know where that surname comes from? No, do tell. Guess what Louis Late's born name was? Poli. Poli. Yeah. Louis Late. Oh. Okay. and I happened to be. He. There was some genengness to do with him, and I happened to hear it on the radio. What a great name! And what did you think that? What's the connection between Louis Late and Mrs. Poli? That, um, that None. Uh, Louis Late was born very poor, wrapped in newspaper okay. as an oh, infant. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So it was that story, the rags to riches okay. story, but just that name le leapt out. It's so okay. beautiful. Poles apart, pole cat, poly. It doesn't, yeah. it's not, because you it's not beating you over the head um, Dutch origin. Yeah. It's, it's just a great name. No, you do wonder about the origin of, of yeah. the name. You say you got many of the other names from Well, you know, there were a lot of Scottish people. There were lots, lots of people yeah. stayed behind after the Boer yeah. War. Yeah. It was a great mix. Yeah. Uh, it is my great delight to go wandering and plundering for names um, in the block, uh, sort of a block away from my home in Simonstown is a place called the Old Burying Ground. Mm. And the first place I walk through is the Boer War yeah. Memorial part. And there's, it's almost, <laughs> on one side, there are all these, the fallen commandos and things, heavily Dutch and Huguenot names. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, it's the Dutch and Huguenot women who've married Scotsmen. Okay. And they've died. And this is a mixing. And, okay. and, and everyone, if biology has found a way through you know, yeah. dogma. And, okay. <laughs> yeah. and they started mixing. So... A lot of the people in the book, the, um, Henry's mother is uh, yes. a Scotsman. She's an Afrikaans yeah. woman, but yeah. she's of yeah. Scots ancestry. Yeah. The farm name, where does that come from? I forget what it is. Uh, the f na name of the farm is... I thought it was a Scottish name, but... Uh, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, it is. It um, is a Scottish name. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, I can't, how ridiculous yeah. that I can't remember. Something very... Um, Craig, Craigivar. Craigivar. Craigivar, yeah. 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 It's a yeah. good yeah. Scots yeah. name. Yeah. And then on names and on the, um, the central women in the novel, uh, why, as you say, another character sort of almost takes over the story, um, Adaira? Adaira. Adaira. Van Brugge. In the first, yeah. Why? I mean, that, it's just interesting to me as a literary technique that from the start, that you, this is announced as a story that was told, told to mm. Adaira. And did you feel you needed her as another um, perspective? Or, um, I'm not saying she's unnecessary, I'm just wondering. No, no, I, I wondered if that wasn't me failing to tell his story without me somehow being in it. Or, I don't know what it was, but she okay. did that thing, you know, that, that sounds like such nonsense whenever you talk about it, a character arriving and demanding to be heard. Yeah. He had to have a partner, he had to have someone who knew him. Yeah. 
and you understood and uh, she just grew and and rather took over and that might well have been I mean I've watched in my my sort of professional life in newspapers people hire in their own image and maybe you, you write in your own image as well whatever you're writing so she becomes yeah. a kind of surrogate for yourself in the novel I'm, yeah. I'm oversimplifying now but you know that. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I also it's like that. Mm. It's what? a mystery. It's a mystery. Now, I like that device of a, um, well, what Henry James would have called a central consciousness. And it's not, she's not the controlling consciousness here, is she? But she, you, you revert to her all the time. Yes, and I like very much that she's completely self-obsessed and she's going through her own little moral crises and yes. making her own way and also thinks yeah. she's hell so clever. Yeah. And then her big awakening is to realize that there was a whole other world yeah. going on. Yeah. And a lot of the book is about imagining... Um, about imagining the other, the enemy or whatever. The, um, or I, I have a theory that if you, if you imagine someone in the act of love, or in, you, you can't hate them. It's a, if you imagine the, the real humanity, the most human acts of people, that you can't despise them as a type anymore. And so one of our defenses against nationalism is to imagine humanity and other people and she's made to do that and then she realizes yeah. that you make a point at some yes. stage that Henry is uh, the bane of the existence of his colleagues in the office because he had this exasperating habit of being able to see things from more than one point of view yes. <laughs> which is it which wastes time in a, Waste in a time bureaucracy and, and especially you're building an empire here chats yeah, together yeah, all yeah, on the so, same page yeah, please yeah. Oh. and um I found it interesting too that you, sorry now I'm, I hope this is not a spoiler, but that she is the one who sort of imagines the, the events in um, mm. Henry's life at the end. Yeah, she's becoming a writer towards yeah. the end, so maybe it is exactly um, yeah. a proxy for me. Yeah, I battled about that part. So yeah, you were saying earlier she, she takes over as it were. She takes over and then she performs an act of imagination, mm. which is such an act of generosity as well. It's the beginning of compassion and of understanding in herself as well yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to imagine how things really work in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's quite optimistic how she thinks they really work in the world. Yes, yeah. yes because what, what she imagines <laughs> is an act of generosity, one might say. Yeah, kindness. Um, kindness. Um, Mm. where one would not have expected sorry we're being very cryptic here because we yeah. don't want to spoil the story well, for you, but, yeah. and the, the book is kind of it's very much about um, South Africa today mm. which is really for myself it's not, not overtly like that at all but you do and not even today because this was you know the way books take forever to get um, made it was about two years ago before fees must fall and all that stuff but there was there were people were starting to make nationalist sounds again against who's in and who's out and, and who are the who are the one and who are the others mm. um, and just because we find ourselves being the others it's, you can still recognize the wrongness in the thing um, and I was almost asking what is the reaction of the reasonable person when that is going on around you how do you deal with it what ought your moral or your reaction to be and the conclusion is just mm. retreat to the personal and be good <laughs> it's as basic as that. be kind no it's not emigrate <laughs> no, my goodness um, <laughs> no a, 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 a sentence I underlined in the book was um, 
as towards the end, Henry thinking, it is an endless imposition, he thinks, to live in a country that is in the process of inventing itself, as his has been since he was a child in the Urania Freistadt. And of course, as it still is, we're still inventing ourselves. I mean, the country is all the time inventing itself and, uh, and having to come up with um, a, a plausible sort of form of invention. And you never know what you think in this country. <laughs> Because it's always no. changing. <laughs> Listen, I, I think we can give the audience um, an opportunity to chip in. Or I could spring something on you, and it really uh, yeah. has only just occurred to me now. A spring. Yeah. Um, I kept looking for a poem, and I, when I write, I have to read poetry to start off because it sort of resets your brain or something. And I kept looking for the poem that would say what I was saying, and then Furi will attest to this. I think. He had just pushed the button on some printing press in India somewhere to start this thing rolling off. And I said, I found it. I found the poem. Mm -hmm. And it's Dear Opperman. And it's fantastic. Okay. And it is the poem that talks about it, uncannily okay. talks about this. Now, I guess there will be some of you in the audience who have read the book and, and some who haven't. I don't think it, it matters either way if, if by um, a show of hands we can get Michiel to read this poem. What poem do you want to read it? My Afrikaans. I'll try, but it's well, Okay, you, yeah, you're, yeah. well, I don't, I, I don't want to be coy, but oh. I'm happy to do it, but, but I don't want to, anyway. You read. Oh, I was going to ask, I really was going to ask you to, but we'll see. Shall okay. I try? And, try. And what if I do Skara, Anital? I don't think it, I, I don't think anyone will hold it against you if you're... But just listen to this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's Dichter by Deje Opperman. Um, Dichter, ik is gevang in midi strijd ergens in die eeuwigheid op een salon verban. Waar al mijn drangen naar verleurde vaderland, mijn dag na dag geëiland hou, met horizonnen en verlangen. En in die geel gloed van die kaas, s'nachts door die smal poot van die wonder, elke woord laat skuk tot kleinste laasies vers. Wat groei, Tot boeg en mas en takelwerk. En die uiteindelijke reis met die klein skip gesloten achter glas. Oh, yes. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A man in isolation. <laughs> yeah. No, it's wonderful. <laughs> and um, may I say that this poem's provenance was tracked down by someone who may or may not be in the audience today, who I will not single out, but I will say thank you, Mrs. Dupria, if you are here. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> thank you. Um, I was wondering about this. I'm not just asking because I feel obliged to ask. Uh, <laughs> but uh, writing about South African history and uh, you having mentioned um, uh, how bizarre it sometimes feels to live in a country that's reinventing itself continually, where do you find your moral compass and who uh, has the right to tell to uh, uh, to tell the story yeah. and to tell who history. and to tell whose stories as and well. who tell whose stories and which stories are the right ones yeah. to tell. With the Spiral House, my first book, which is a lot about a young freed slave who goes back to a slave plantation. Um, I was very new to the whole book world, and you know yourself, it's it's a different thing from journalism where we both come from, where we're nice, we're, we're able to scale after. Um, and on a panel like this in Johannesburg, a young coloured woman, her race is relevant, said well, she, she was actually quite angry about 
she didn't, wasn't rude enough to say it directly about me, but about people who take other people's stories and tell them and who pro- appropriate other people's stories. And I was, of course, mortified, terrified, all that stuff. And then afterwards I thought, absolutely not. I mean, the reason I changed from journalism to fiction is, is that no one tells me what to write. And I had my little Biko moment, I write what I like kind of thing. Um, and you, it's all very well to say that, but I am so conscious that it's not my story in a way, and um, I both want to insist on the right to try to tell it, and greatly fear someone saying, how very dare you say that. Um, So I don't know what the answer is. And the moral compass thing, um, we're not solving stuff, we're just describing stuff, in the hope of just putting it out there. But I also personally believe, and it comes out very strongly in this book as well, that in the face of that kind of, any kind of great sweeping political movement that makes you feel terribly uneasy, which just keeps happening again and again in this country, that you'd really do, as chicken as it sounds, retreat to the personal and be kind. It's about one-on-one stories, but that's my thing. That's why English liberals will never prevail. (laughs) We don't have any flags. (laughs) Don't march. (laughs) We just say, be nice. Yeah, I don't know if that answers it, but the and the stories, oh boy, they're everywhere. Those stories, but I'm very conscious. Um, I think I, I said to Fri or, or uh, might have been to Beth. Uh, the the next book that's one, the one that's come sweeping in, it's about my lot, and my lot are quite interesting. <laughs> we're very good at pretending we're good. Woo. So they're English-speaking uh, colonial British, are they? Victorian Natal. Uh, Natal, yeah. okay. okay. Yeah. And I love it. You're quite tough it. on them in this book. Are you going to be tough on, on them? On the oh, English? Well, on the English, yes. Yo, we don't have the best history. Well, yeah. they... That's the weird thing. That's what interests me is we're all of us, well, especially my tribe, is standing there like a toddler at the foot of Africa, shaking its little fist at Europe and saying, you are not the boss of me. And what do you think, how do you think I'm doing? <laughs> it's a cultural cringe and all that stuff. Quite tough on you, but we're all... Anyway, how a lot. Any other questions? Claire, most writers, most writers start publishing in their 20s or 30s. <laughs> <laughs> and you sort of land on the stage fully formed. How come that happened? Why I started so late? Oh, yeah. I had to raise my babies and, and support them. I don't have that excuse. <laughs> and put Cocoa Pops on the table and you're not going to support... I really was very conscious of having to raise, um, uh, to raise my girls. And it re- I really started writing when the youngest went off to varsity. So. And what did you do before that oh, with your to, imagination? <laughs> oh, that, no. <laughs> I stuck to the facts. <laughs> I worked as a reporter for years and years, which okay. took care of the writing part completely. And, the, um, and it really was, I, I, I came by stages to this, but the stages were, you could see in hindsight, heading this way because they were, I stopped reporting. I said, I'm not going to write what anyone else wants me to write anymore. It started to feel like a dwindling resource that I had to save it from reportage and having the stuff subbed and stuff. Um, and so I went into the sub-editing side of things, which is great, you're just messing up someone else's words. <laughs> and, then, and then tried this. Um, but we did figure out, um, 
standing outside, that I'm not the oldest person ever to have published a first novel in South Africa. No, I think I've got the record there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. If, uh, yeah, started late. Yeah. Took my, uh, I've just been given a signal from the back that okay. we should... Okay. I just want to say, it's not that, that you've started so late, oh. but that you've managed to... Not do it for so long. No, oh. that just to do it so well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, there, there seems to be no prior process of, of stumbling and finding your voice. Yeah. That's what I meant to say, that it's oh. as if you, you found your voice and there it was. Yeah. Faree has a phrase, um, Karen, you may have heard from him, so he, he says, you're writing fit, you're, because you've done it your whole life. It's a, a language almost, I mean, that sounds so silly, but it really is a, a facility that you have with. So you, you, a whole stage of of that process, I think, is taken care of by a long apprenticeship of doing it daily to earn your bread. Take your word for it. Hmm? <laughs> I'll take your word for oh. it. Thanks, everybody. We, we have to wrap up Thanks, there. Thanks, guys. <laughs>